Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Leon Vitali. Mr. Vitali portrayed Lord Bullington in Kubrick's Barry Lyndon and went on to assist Kubrick in each of his future films for the next 24 years. Um, I appreciate your time very much. And, and especially since I know you're very busy, uh, you said that you were remastering uh, Barry Lyndon. For, is that for the Blu-ray release of it? For the Blu-ray release and Lolita too. Mm-hmm. Is this going to be another kind of comprehensive uh, box set, or, or are they separate no, kind well, of elements? They, I don't know what what Warner's actually planned to do. The fact was that in the original Blu-ray box set, they couldn't put uh, Barry Lyndon uh, as a part of it simply because in the days when we first, you know, um, transferred them. Um, which was back in 2001, 2000, 2001. Barry Lyndon was uh, interlaced. We, we transferred it. It was done in interlace before, you know, you got, um, you know, the sort of scanning process was worked out. And so it wasn't compatible to, to uh, Blu-ray. They had to work it out. And, and so, you know, what they thought was a better way to do it was to take the time with it and be able to do it properly and do it justice and i have to say that it's it's remarkable i mean the detail that you see in everything actually i mean even the, the you know the fabrics you, you see things inside the fabrics um very subtle patterns or weavings that you would never you'd never see and uh it's just remarkable it really is mm. I, I would imagine that that mr kubrick would be uh, ecstatic about this new technology that that makes this all possible. Oh yes, definitely, most definitely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, in from the old days when we <coughs> did the first mastering, because uh, Stanley didn't really get involved with uh, the video until he understood that there was a, a viable market there, which wasn't until the, sort of the approaching the end of the uh, the eighties, you know, eighty seven, eighty six. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was when he realized that he should, you know, it was open season, really. A lot of companies were, um, you know, transferring and and uh, for Warners, you know, in those days. And it wasn't until they found, uh, you know, uh, a real market that Stanley understood that, you know, video was going to be as important as, as, as film, you know, theatrical release on its own, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, he—that's when he, he he mastered every single one of his uh, titles, and so we used a company called Modern Video, um, a wonderful company, wonderful people working there. Cynthia Little, who, who sadly is no longer with us, was uh, you know the person who I sort of worked with over the phone, and uh, then what they used to do is send the master, you know, the one-inch tapes uh, to us in England and then Stanley would time them there mm. and we'd time them and send back corrections and you know they did a wonderful job but of course it was you know compared to today it was a pretty primitive 
video, <laughs> and that's it. Right, right. You know, so, so you know, Stanley was always looking forward to getting, you know, the day when high def would be, you know, the name of the game. And it was mm. something that he he really would have he would have loved it. He would have loved it. Tell me about about your impressions during the process because you're so intricately involved in preserving and, and continuing the legacy of, of Mr. Kubrick's work. Um, your your process of viewing these films and, and, and going through them again, uh, what what is eye opening about this this new experience uh, handling these two titles for you? Well, well, and also, you know, um, you know, all of them really, and and it's it's been it's been a kind of progressive, uh, progressive thing, and it's not only to do with video, really, it's it's to do also with, you know, the number of hours that you sat with Stanley. I sat with Stanley, you know, mm. to the early hours of the morning, actually timing meticulously timing each shot for each of his movies in the laboratory, and and it kind of starts there. And then as you, we went on and, you know, sat with him and we went through the color timings, uh, densities and, and contrast, uh, ratios, you know, it's, it's all a part and parcel of the one, the one frame, you know, so to speak, um, mm. to get it looking as good as it can be. And, um, what I found was that when, when I started doing the, the first, uh, well, not the very first one, because they kind of released the very first Kubrick collection in a hurry on the tales of Eyes Wide Shut. And uh, the public wasn't, and they let it be known, they weren't particularly happy with it. So Warren Lieberfarb, who was then running Warner Home Video, just said, okay, we'll do it all over again. Now, Stanley had died by this time. So that's really what I, I did for, I think, two and a half years. It was just... Mm started right back from scratch, repaired all the uh, camera original negatives where we could, and then made new intermediates like interpositive and negatives. And we took those interpositives and we transferred them um, so that we could actually start afresh with a you know a much better definition, color time, density, contrast, everything for the uh, the Stanley Kubrick collection, as I think most people would have known it before this Blu-ray. Uh, came along, right? And um, so, you know, what I found with that is it, a progressive thing. You know, was simply because of the definition improvement in definition you were getting, and you could be much more specific too. You could, you know, the transfer machines. You could actually target them for a, an area of a picture. You know, they had what they call windows. So instead of doing an overall correction, which you know for the whole picture. Uh, which was the only way you could do it in the lab anyway, and the only way you could do it in the beginning of video. Um, what you could do now is target uh, the middle of the picture, um, you know, an area in the left or the right or top or bottom or wherever mm. uh, to get, you know, a shadow detail uh, improved or, or what have you. So it's the, it was being able to really get in deeply into the you know, most minimal areas to be able to, you know, manipulate the picture so that it looked basically what you, you know, I understood Stanley had wanted from all those years of timing with him from the laboratory. Now with Blu-ray, of course, you've got, you've got a, a totally different uh, situation where it is so high, the definition is so high that, you know, 
you actually have to kind of lash it back a little bit because colors pop in a way like the reds become unbelievably red and the greens become unbelievably green you know the primary colors will stick out uh, you know on a just one transfer you know yeah. so what we're finding with with the blu-ray although the definition is is quite remarkable and fantastic and it gets right into the shadows and reaches those dark areas where you would have had to work very hard to get them um you know just until just recently what you can do now is is you you're there you've got those shadow areas you can target each and every kind of layer you can work with the green you can see how how the green is reacting it, it's quite a fantastic tool and you you can take back those primary colors so that they look more naturalistic and they look you know more of a part of the whole instead of you know a standout on its own kind of feature so that's what blu-ray can do for you you know one point of controversy about some of the older titles that they're remastering for blu-ray is the grain issue uh, I mean, do, do you feel it's a, it's an essential part of the experience of the film to to maintain the kind of film grain? Well, let's let's put it this way, um, because there's always going to be that kind of mm -hmm. uh, discussion, you know. Just as there was, you know, when we shot Barry Lyndon, I think Stanley shot on uh, the highest speed color film. Then was I think was 50 ASA. Mm. You know, it's pretty, very slow by today's standards. And that was an improvement on, you know, 25 ASA. And what it meant, what that means is, you know, the, the speed of the film, you know, how fast it is in resolving an image, uh, it means you've got to crank up light in there to such an extent. And that was always the challenge is, you know, was how, you know, how much light you had to use, but how you could nuance it so that it, took a beautiful picture and it took DOPs who really knew what they were doing to be able to mm -hmm. do that of course and as the speed of the film increased by the time we got to The Shining it was already uh, I think it was 100 ASA so it was you know getting faster quite quickly which meant you didn't have to use so much lights and on top of that you had high speed lenses which meant you know you could get um, you know better exposures with lower light. And that's basically what, you know, Kodak and, and Agfa and Fuji have been you know, constantly working for uh, for many, many years. And if you look closely, even though, you know, faster speed used to mean more visible grain and busier grain inside a picture, you know, and so you had a lot mm -hmm. of DOPs, well, I say a lot, but DOPs who I kind of worked with, even when I was still an actor, who would who would say, well, you know, the art's going out of out of it all now. You know, you you using less lights and high speed lenses. It means you're not working so hard. You know, sculpturing the light, you know, to get the atmospheres and and the overall uh, impression that you want. Um, and Stanley loved grain. This is the other conundrum. Stanley loves grain because for him, first of all, it was a way to tell if a picture was sharp. You know, if you right. you've got a frame of film and you took a a linen tester, you could look at it and uh, through the linen tester and you could see if the grain if the grain wasn't sharp or it wasn't sharp in the part of the picture, it just meant the picture wasn't sharp overall, period. No argument, I mean, because it's the grain that makes up the picture. But what companies have been doing 
now for a long, long time is getting the grain finer and finer. And as fast as the film has been getting, because it's 800 ASA color film now, you know, mm. uh, as fast as it's been getting, that grain question has, has been a part of what they've been doing for the last good many few years now. So there's been that convergence between, you know, the film image and, let's say, the video or the electronic image that you get on television, um, you know, going on for quite a long time. It's been coming closer and closer together. Yeah. So much so, you know, that, that you know, there's a facility for adding grain on. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. You know, so, so. You know, those arguments are always going to happen. And, and just to underline that, on Eyes Wide Shut, you know, Stanley used 500 ASA film, which was, this is 1999, so it's 11 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. um, we shot Eyes Wide Shut. In fact, 12 years ago when we shot Eyes Wide Shut. Actually, 13 years ago when we started. <laughs> and and uh, just that, you know, 12 years ago when we finished. Um, and, you know, a lot of people who saw that film they were a little bit bemused because Stanley let the grain go. He actually didn't mind it at all because for him, it kind of gave the picture an overall kind of idea. Not as, a, you know, people have ever done this dream idea about Eyes Wide Shut. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a film about really subconscious desire and the dream bit doesn't really come into it uh, except for, you know, his wife who relates a dream she had. Uh, that makes him extremely angry. So, you know, this question of grain, and I know there are a lot of young people just coming in into, you know, cinema, if you talk to them, they said, oh, what's that grain, all that grain, oh my God. You know, <laughs> it, it's, you know, it was something quite foreign to them. It would be like, you know, handing them a 35 mil magnetic soundtrack and saying, do something with this. They wouldn't know what to do with it. Right, right. It, it doesn't exist now, you know. So Stanley would have been conscious of those those changes. There were always things he didn't particularly like. He hates the one eight one eight five aspect ratio because he always thought that that's you know twenty to twenty five percent of area that could be picture, <laughs> which is a a black line top and bottom. Mm -hmm. you know? He hated mm -hmm. it, but he he understood that you know that was the way because of the multiplexes. You know, unless you were going absolutely widescreen, that was the way. Everything was being shown, you know, the option to show a film in one three, you know, full screen or one six six even, were, just weren't there anymore. And so he understood, you know, the limitations of any advance, you know, what it meant you couldn't do anymore, as much as what you could do now because of it. So, right, you know, those, those questions are always there. They're always there, and those arguments will always be there. And, you know, and I think what, what electronic, you know, media is, is doing now is trying to really, without, you know, actually trying to shoot something so it looks like film, they're actually trying to soften it a little bit, a bit like digital sound, which can sound so cold, you know. Yeah. Have, you know, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of bands and music, you know, they record their original uh, tracks the way they would have done before it goes to the digital process, just to keep some warmth inside that sound, you know, mm -hmm. that's a clinically clean, and uh, you know, you've got a little bit of atmosphere in there. And 
Well, I think it's obviously just extremely valuable to have you supervising this whole process because you work so closely with with Mr. Kubrick and 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 you have the sense of what he wanted to have done with these films. So you're able to say yes, we can do these things to to the negative to the to the print, but we shouldn't do them, <laughs> you know, because that's well, that's that's true too. And, and yeah, yeah. And then that was the battle when we re-released Clockwork Orange in, in England, for instance, in 2000. One of the problems we had was that there were cinemas no longer had 166 picture ratio. They didn't show anything. They didn't have the gates for them anymore in their projectors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what could you do? You had to go for the 185. And, and I have to say that, you know, it did hurt the composition because Stanley was meticulous having been a stills photographer you know about his composition and uh, you know it's it's these these compensations or these deficiencies or what have you you know there you you'll battle with them all forever you just will I mean yeah, nothing will yeah. ever be a perfect format and that's all there is to it um, I, I want to talk about these these films, obviously, starting with when you started with with Mr. Kubrick on on Barry Lyndon. Um, you you auditioned uh, for him, and and your part became kind of bigger in the process, didn't it, from its original conception? It did. It did. It did. Um, and then let's start with the with the uh, audition. You know, up in those days, and we're talking, you know, the seventies. You know, every audition that one ever went to as an actor, it was usually a, you met a director or a producer or both, and you took a 10 by 8 photo and a, and a CV or a resume, as you call it, mm-hmm. um, and you, you sat with them for like two minutes, and they took a look at your picture, and they took a look at your your resume, and, and that was your meeting, you know? And what Stanley did, and so you always dreaded them, because, you know... <laughs> What were you doing? Are you, are you trying to get on with them? Are you trying to be, you know? And they probably had an idea of what they were looking for in the first place. But what Stanley did was, he he wasn't pre- present at any of the auditions. Um, he had a casting director, and he was the first one, as far as I know, in, in the UK anyway, that used video as an audition tool. And he would send out, uh, he mailed the dialogue to anybody who's coming in for an audition, a day to two days before with an instruction to learn it and then you came in and they you know you were videoed doing the scene that had been given for you to do which was the biggest most wonderful release and relief as Mm -hmm. far as I was concerned as an actor because he wasn't there there was no one to try to impress in any other way but show what you can do as an actor And, and that was all there was to it and um, I got a call back, and um, and then I, I got the role. And there was really one dialogue scene and a couple of peripheral, maybe one or two line scenes in it. And uh, and my schedule was um, 13 days over eight weeks, and it ended up mm. with many, many scenes, and I ended up there for eight and a half months. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute bliss and heaven. I bet. I, mean, I can tell you that. Especially, you know, 
you know, the, the, the costumes, the wardrobes, the atmospheres that were being created. You were filming in all these stately homes which had been there, uh, you know, during the period. So you just, for the longer you stayed, the more you felt a part and part of that, you know, whole feeling and that whole atmosphere. So, I was going to ask about that because as an actor, particularly on a project like Barry Lyndon, uh, when when you're dealing with those just the, the grand locations and you're shooting a large portion by candlelight and, and, and you're so, you must have been so immersed in that world that that just was infused in, in the marrow of your performance just naturally, I would think. Well, immersed is the right word. That's the yeah. perfect word to use. That's exactly how I felt. I can only talk about myself, you know, uh, as, an, as a, I was as an actor then, you know, that that's exactly what it gave you, an, an immersion in the whole thing. And, you know, some of those clothes, the waistcoats, for instance, that I was wearing in that film were originals. You know, they were 200 years old, you know. Mm. And that was even better. It was even closer to you, kind of, wrapped in it and enveloped in it in, in a very physical way too so it was just a, a wonderful you know time just absolutely meant nothing of course because you were so often doing night scenes you know or evening scenes you know for a whole day over two days so mm -hmm. <laughs> you you were in the time warp it, it meant nothing you know so you'd come out at the end of the day and you think Good God, it's still light. <laughs> There's a world that exists outside of this bubble here, yeah. That's yeah. right, yes, exactly. Exactly, and, you know, uh, you know, you, a lot of actors feel that, you know, whether you work on stage or television or what have you, but, um, and I, I often felt that way, um, but, you know, this was something very different and, and, and very intense, and, you know, it was just a, a wonderful experience. Well, I, I've, I've, we've all heard many stories from accounts from various actors that have, have worked with Kubrick about his process, and we, we've heard a couple on for this series so far. And, and by the way, before I forget, uh, I'm sure you've spoken to him since I've interviewed him for the series, but Matthew Modine sends his love. I oh. <laughs> want to make sure I got that message out to you. Uh, but it's, from your point of view, uh, Kubrick as as, uh, as as director to, to an actor, what, what were your impressions? He was the closest uh, that I ever came to uh, working with a director for film or television, uh, the way that a director worked with actors on stage. Mm -hmm. In other words, you'd rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse until... He felt that the right emotional temperature and the right feeling of the scene was was happening, and uh, and how he used to do that very often was, you know, he never knew how he was going to shoot a scene. He just never knew it, you know, how he was going to do it when you walked on set. So he would have you act the scene, but if you thought you were going to sort of just trot your way through a rehearsal, you know, forget it. He'd say, do it the way you think you're going to do it. Do it for real, even in your rehearsal periods, you know, because you may give me a clue as to how I can actually start shooting this scene. You may give me an idea about where to where to start and what lens to use and how far away to set up 
you know, the camera. Um, sim- you know, so so you kept on going through that process, and if something wasn't working, you could talk about it and discuss it, and you could say, well, it doesn't feel natural for me uh, to say it this way, and he'd say, he'd say, well, how would you say it then? And so you'd go through this incredible process of getting it to that pitch where, number one, you'd, you weren't thinking about your dialogue. In other words, you know, when he used to talk about um, knowing your dialogue, and when he said knowing your dialogue, what he meant by that, and what I think is, is, is right as well, I always did, was that you should know your dialogue so well that that is not part of what's going through your brain when you're mm-hmm. acting the scene. Now, you should know it so well, you don't have to think about it. You right. know, that it's just there in the back of your brain. And it's, it's, it's you know, the emotional core of what it is, the reason why you're there, that is the important thing to capture after that. Um, otherwise, the dialogue has no meaning. So, yeah. you know, it was... It was like working with the stage director where for weeks and weeks you will analyze each scene down to the nth degree uh, before you come to an opening night. Whereas with Stanley, you know, if it took a day to get it right, just to shoot that little scene, you'd take a day. And sometimes we took two days. It was not uncommon for him, you know, to work that long on one scene. And, Mm -hmm. And in actual fact, you know, when you think of Eyes Wide Shut, well, the the dual scene in the barn, for a start, that was two weeks, two and a half weeks, actually, um, mm. that it took to shoot that scene. In Eyes Wide Shut, it was, you know, becoming seven weeks inside the billiard room and, uh, you know, in the denouement of, of, you know, Tom finding out about, Tom Cruise finding out about, you know, what was what had happened to him, you know, right. especially in that masked ball scene. Um, and, you know, it... it, it meant nothing for Stanley to just keep keep doing it until he felt something interesting was happening that enhanced the thrust of the story and it was as simple as that well that's just it because you hear so much about uh i mean there's mr kubrick is a legendary figure and and with with all all legendary figures there's there's a lot of speculation and, and rumor and all kinds of stuff so yeah exa- bullshit that's exactly what I, what i mean uh but you hear about the kind of controlling nature uh of 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 him when it came to his work he just wanted to get it right and i i think the clearest example of why he wasn't controlling in the manner that people peg him as is is the fact that he didn't necessarily have a preconceived notion of where a scene should go, he gave it the time and the freedom to organically go wherever it was most interesting. Uh, you know, and that has to be a scary, a scary thing for a filmmaker to, to go in and not, not have everything preconceived what, what exactly you're going to get and just let it live. Yes, absolutely. And, and I, I can't tell you that, you know, for me, I, I, I went to a drama school. I mean, I, I spent two and a half years in a drama school in London, you know, and I worked a lot on stage. And so for me, see, it was it's, uh, one, and I'd, you know, done a couple, what, three, four little movies before Barry Lyndon. But what I found was that because he was so willing to go through that process, it was a, a wonderful kind of uh, freedom for me, in actual fact. But what you do notice sometimes is that 
there's not a lot of uh, actors who are used to that. Um, there's a lot of actors who don't go through a drama school process, which doesn't I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying that, you know, some actors are natural screen actors or, or just natural actors who never go through that kind of process, whatever medium they work in most, you know. Um, so it can be scary for them, too, to be yeah. suddenly told, you can do whatever you like, let's see what you're doing, you know. And then, you know, to have it chip away and chip away and chip away and chip away to get it down to where you know, it becomes interesting to watch and to look at and it does something for the scene and the movie as a whole. It, yeah. it can be just as terrifying the other way around. <laughs> I know it. I mean, you, know, you know from personal experience, yes. <laughs> personal experience and, and you know, uh, you know, I, I worked as a, you know, for Stanley, I used to work a lot with actors as a, as a kind of dialogue coach. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was a very strange uh, process for them to go through for some of them, you know, they would say, I've never done this like this before in my life, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, you would have to keep on saying, well, let's just keep it, you know, keep patient and, and let's do it the way he wants to do it, which is just to have you come on set and so free of any kind of mental process uh, that you are just doing, which is the key very often yeah. to yeah. performance, you know. Um, so obviously you <clears throat> got along famously with Mr. Kubrick on Barry Lyndon and, and the two of you bonded, uh, during that process enough that you worked with him throughout the remainder of his career. Um, what clicked between the two of you, do you think? I, do you know something? It's one of those things you never know. Uh, I can only, my childhood experiences were nearly always that, you know, when I came up against, uh, you know, somebody, very often the people who became my best friends, you were suspicious of them at first or you weren't sure of them or there was a kind of mutual dislike or, or wariness that you, you didn't try to analyze. You were too young. You never thought about it. But something would click, but with, you know, which meant they became kind of friends for life, so to speak, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. With Stanley, it was something I hadn't experienced before, uh, which was from the moment I met him, it was just a kind of really natural dialogue between us as if, and he treated me very much, I was kind of shocked because, you know, one had heard, <laughs> as we talked about earlier, you know, so much about him. I just found him a really easy person to get on with and he'd ask your opinion about everything, you know, he'd say, well, I think this and that, what do you think, Leon? And it would be a process that went on like that, and he actually allowed me to, to sort of come on set, even when I wasn't shooting, to actually, you know, watch, uh, when it wasn't not a thing that he encouraged or he even liked um, to do. He used to, you know, say, I don't want anyone on the set unless they have something specific to do there, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so it was just something... To this day, I could never, un you know, I, I can't analyze it. I don't know what. I mean, we had the same birthday, but I don't, I'm an <laughs> astrological kind of thing, you know. I, I don't sort of think, oh, it must have been that, you know. Um, it, it was just something that happened, and uh, and the more we worked. And there was, the other thing was, you know, sometimes when we'd start looking at a scene, um, 
it would be one on one inside his caravan or his you know his, you know whatever office he was using um and so you'd have a kind of a long discussion about life in general and soccer in particular and uh, or anything politics it would be anything you know mm -hmm. somehow as a preamble to sort of getting down and talking about you know what it was we were actually there for <laughs> you know there to do and right. um it just it just continued that way it just continued that's the, that way that's the one thing that uh i'm finding about him too uh, that i found throughout the years in my readings of him and, and talking to people that worked with him he was endlessly fascinated in everything you know everything, everything. yeah it was a yeah. wonderful childlike curiosity about everything, you know. I mean, childlike in in the best best way, you know. Mm -hmm. That a child who who just wants to know and and can't seem to keep his nose out of anything, just simply out of curiosity, you know. Yeah. And that's really he he was there. That was his zone, I think. Um, the The Shining. Uh, now, one of your main tasks on The Shining was to find uh, the young Danny. And I, I understand that was an exhaustive <laughs> search. You can say, yes, yes, yes. That was 4,000 children I saw. Oh, um, wow. And it, it was, um, it started off with uh, almost three, well, no, two months in Chicago, two and a half months, no, two months in, in Denver, Colorado. That's where it started. Two and a half months in Chicago, and then the rest of the time was in Kansas City, Missouri. You know, Midwest. He right. wanted the Midwest child because that was would be a neutral, a neutral uh, dialect, neutral accent. Uh, you know, Shelley and Jack had totally different kind of uh, voice patterns. So, um, you know, this this would kind of tie them together. Uh, so the Midwest was the target, and so they sent out you know, TV ads and newspaper ads um, wherever they could to get encourage people to write into the local Warner offices and, you know, propose their child. <laughs> Sacrifice. Um, and uh, there were 4,000 children uh, to, look and, uh, to look at and interview. And probably I'd say about 500 of those I kind of video tested or got back um, for some kind of exercise. And the reason why uh, he he sent me to do that was simply because we'd had a talk and I was telling him about how interested I'd been, I'd become in, in the mechanics of filmmaking, which I'd known nothing about. I was an innocent, you know, when I went to Barry Lyndon and, you know, I started noticing things when I worked on Barry Lyndon. He started explaining things. So, you know, he understood that I, I really had a desire to work in, in production. And so he sent me to do that because I could improvise with children so it wasn't just ever going to be if we got down to the point where a, a child was interesting and looked like you know something that that might work you know it wouldn't be just cold script readings and trying to make sense of dialogue you know these were in in some cases they were not even four years old and so wow. four to about seven years old was the range of, of ages that I was seeing so it meant I could improvise with them some of the situations that were in the actual story and and see how they could, you know, work it, react with it and play with it and understand what was actually happening. So 
it was better for him to do it that way than to have, you know, what I would call cold casting, even in the way that, you know, it worked. He did it on Barry Lyndon, which was better than the way he used to do it before. Mm -hmm. You know, this was uh, another way, another approach, which uh, he thought would pay dividends, and it did. Well, and I see the behind-the-scenes footage of of The Shining, and I mean, I'm, I'm amazed by Danny Lloyd's performance in the film, and uh, I see that the, the multiple takes and, and the in intensity of that experience, as I'm sure many, many uh, film sets are equally intense. Um, it, he was unfazed by it. He seemed to be. It's the adults that that were having difficulty dealing. Uh, in some in some cases, uh, but you shepherded uh, Danny throughout that whole process, didn't you? Absolutely. I th I thought my my job was going to end after, you know, I'd finished that process. Uh, but he just called me and said, I I don't know what you think you're doing, you know, when this is finished. But you know, you're coming to England because I'm going to need you to. You know, be with Danny and stay with Danny and and coach with Danny and from there he kind of you know whenever I, Danny wasn't a part of any you know period of shooting um, he'd have me working with the the DP or have me looking for you know casting for the the small peripheral roles nothing important but the smaller peripheral roles mm -hmm. um, he had me doing dozens of different jobs you know. And, Coaching, you know, other actors like Scatman, for instance, you know, uh, and working with them. So, um, you know, it was it was a really, you know, well, just a fantastic experience to sort of start working in areas I'd never worked in before. But with Danny, of course, he had wonderful parents, absolutely fantastic parents, um, who. You know, as hard as it got, remember for them, you know, there were fifty. It was fifteen months from when they left their home in Peoria to when they got back there finally. You know, there were those little times when, you know, it was like, God, how long is it going to go on? Ah, you know, and I did quite understandably. And um, but you know, ninety-nine percent of the time, they were just wonderful. They never forced themselves, you know, to be. They, you know, they understood when we said it's better that you're not on set, for instance, because if you're on set and he knows it, he'll always be referring to you in some mm -hmm. way. His mind may not be focused the way we need it. So they were great. They were fantastic. And they took it in turns to bring in, you know, when we got them to the studio, they took it in turns to, you know, they'd be sitting in their dressing room, in Dan's dressing room all day, you know, uh, you know or taking a walk around the studios or doing anything not to get bored, so I'm sure. Um, and there were days when Danny was on standby but never really called, so it was days that they had to stay at home in case he was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was all part and parcel of it, and I became, you know, a part of, of that world, of their world, uh, too, you know. And, and you know, and, and I would work with Danny and keep working with him in an improvised, you know, improvising um, all these scenes in, in any kind of period of the day when we were together in the dressing room. Um, so there'd be a constant kind of flow in his life. It wasn't sort of, eh, here we go, you're shooting today, and then, you know, for several days, nothing. He'd always be a, a part of it. A part of it. So, and he had a fantastic older brother, too, who made a difference to it all as well. He's remar remarkable in that movie. Uh, 
I have one more question about his work with actors, um, and and it's kind of elucidated in in that making of The Shining that that we're all privy to. Um, all directors, to some extent, I'm sure their approaches to actors differ depending upon that particular actor's needs. Uh, did you did you f- find that with Kubrick as well? Because I look at the difference between how he worked with Nicholson and Duvall, uh, yeah. and obviously, I, I guess his approach to Shelley Duvall was uh, to benefit w- where emotionally she needed to be throughout the course of that entire film. Yes, um, yes, and that and that's something that's kind of kind of missed and forgotten, really, in The Shining, particularly. You know, people talk. If you mention The Shining, you know, one of the, you know, things that people always say, oh, yes, you know, the bike going over the the rug and the floor and the rug and the floor. And they think about those iconic kind of shots and atmospheres that Stanley created. Or they talk about when Jack went mad, you know. Mm-hmm. They very rarely give the credit that Shelley was due and is due for what she did in that film. She was quite aware that she was being put through the mill. She understood that. I mean, she didn't always feel good about it, and why would why would she? It was a constant pressure for six months, you know, from the moment that we filmed the first kind of moment when she was feeling uncertain and, and you know, she understood something was seriously wrong, which probably was, you know, when Danny wanders in with all those bruises on his neck after Jack's had his nightmare, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. From that point on, you know, she had to pitch it at such a highly charged emotional level and how do you do that on a day-by-day basis without going totally mad for for a period of six months i mean so stanley kind of seized on that and it wasn't particularly attractive or or feel good in any way you know he was quite aware of of what he was doing but you know he felt the need to do it and shelley was shelley understood understood that she said i think she says in the in the documentary i know it's a means to an end but you know Mm -hmm. and uh it wasn't a a pleasant experience for her whatsoever so that's a really good kind of illustration and i would give you another one that contrasts even further from jack and shelley um would be scatman who you know was a man who could remember every word of every song he'd ever sung since the 30s but sometimes found it difficult to remember, you know, five lines of dialogue, you know, in a take. And so, you know, there's this, you know, I think in the Guinness Book of Records or some film kind of, you know, you know, funny things that happen in films, you know, there's this reference to how many takes he did on set in, in the kitchen with, with Danny, for instance, or inside, you know, the food stores where he has to list off all these you know, everything he's got and how many of it. You know, yeah. Like 35 bags of this and 25 bags of that and 15 this and 14 that. You know, which were uh, difficult things for any actor to remember in a real constant flow, you know, without mm-hmm. a break or a hesitation. And so I was Scatman's dialogue coach and, and what we understood was that maybe for the first or second or third takes, he'd be okay, I mean, not what Stanley wanted in, in, you know, in emotional reach, but the dialogue was there, but the longer you went on, the more uncertain Scatman would get. He was getting on. He was, you know, 68 years old, <laughs> you know, when we filmed those scenes. 
and you know and he then then sometimes sadly you know his his confidence would would go simply because Stanley was asking him to keep it going and repeat it and repeat it and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. But to his credit, and fantastically, see, he did. He went with that. So Stanley was incredibly patient with him. Never, mm-hmm. you know, very softly spoken, very gently guiding him and, and telling him, no, you, you do it again, it's not quite right. Do it again, it's not quite right. And what you get in that scene between Danny and Scatman at the kitchen table is you're looking at Scatman as if he's one of the most accomplished screen actors of all time. He's so beautifully orchestrated and so wonderfully pitched that, that it just comes out so beautifully, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so that was, a, you know, every one of those actors, and Danny was another one where, you know, he'd come on so prepared because... You know, I videoed all our rehearsals and Stanley said, you know, get him a little more like this or a little more like that. Or I don't like what you're doing with him here or I I like what you're doing with him there. So Danny was prepared so Stanley could be very patient with him, you know, and and very soft and gentle with him. So you're absolutely right. The way he dealt with each actor was absolutely different from how he dealt with another one. And he was, you, you said, said that he was soft-spoken, and that's another thing that I've read of him, is that when all the situations made a temper tantrum completely understandable, uh, he, he went the opposite way. I mean, he, he was a, kind of a sea of calm in a way. Well, well, no, sometimes. I don't want to over, over, exaggerate, you know. <laughs> you know, Stan, Stanley, Stanley was one of those people, and when I talk about childish, I mean, as it came along, he just had the wisdom of an adult to know that now was not the time to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. But if he, if he felt angry about something, you know, and it would often be, you know, what he would consider to be the backup to, what he was trying to do with these actors, you know, and it could be, I don't know, uh, a misfire with the with the lighting, or you know, uh, you know, slowness on the set, you know, getting a magazine changed, or you know, on the camera, or you know, something as 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 small as that, an irritant. It's the irritant that he would explode over, you know. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. get really, really angry, which, it, in a way, you could say kept a lot of people on their toes who might not have been on their toes if he hadn't been. But I can't remember, apart from, you know, those times when he was trying to push Shelley, for instance, you know, when coming out of that door with the snows blocking it up and what have you, which wasn't her fault, because I, I was there when that happened, and right. it wasn't her fault. And he kind of knew that, but he could also see that if he pushed it and pushed her that you know it would upset her and then she'd be coming out with a totally different attitude you know what he needed for that part of of that scene you know so yeah. he you know there's an exaggeration whichever you know whatever way one talks about stanley uh, there's a you know a way to exaggerate whatever it is you're talking about to the exclusion of all else what you could say was was that he had every kind of temperament inside him, and you know sometimes he knew when to use it, and sometimes he couldn't help it. But there was always a kind of correlation between you know 
how he was dealing with something and what was needed at the time. So that was an overriding principle, I think. I, I'm, I'm interested, particularly interested in the, the, the relationship he had with his crew, uh, in particular, uh, Mr. Alcott, uh, his, his DP for those, those terrific films. What was that collaboration like as you observed it? Um, well, John Alcott was a very, uh, well, he was around the set on Stanley's films. He was, a quietly spoken man. I mean, he really was. I never saw him get mad once or lose his, you know, lose his temper or, or lose his marbles, as we say in England, you know. Mm-hmm. Not once, I, I, you know. Um, whether that was just because, you know, he was working with Stanley, I, I, I don't know, because I never experienced him on another production. But what I can say about you know, observing him with Stanley was that Stanley had, you know, a, a, a deep respect for his you know, intellect. Is the wrong word because it makes it sound like it's a real mental process. Although John would work out those those you know mental processes. Lighting has a lot to do with you know, calculation, of course it does. You know, in in all its forms, and and Stanley had a lot of respect for that and he and he had a lot of respect for the fact that John was very even tempered and and calm when we were setting up and sometimes you know we'd get as far as starting to shoot a scene after maybe a day or two days of lighting tests and rigging and god knows what and Stanley would just say this doesn't look right and start again from scratch and and John there wasn't a flicker of anything <laughs> across his face, it was just okay. Then we're starting again, and it was John also who, who you know, came up with this design for what Aeroflex produced, which was a tube that you could fit any lens to the end of. So instead of those little you know stubby viewfinders that a lot of directors used to use and still do, I guess, you know, Stanley had a, a tube uh, that he could attach any lens to, and that's how he looked around to find his first shot in any scene, you know? Yeah. And it was John who, who came up with that idea and and designed it, and Ariflex produced it, you know, specifically for Stanley. Um, so, the, the, you know, John had a deep understanding of, of, of what he was there for and what he was doing. So, mm. you know, you never, you, I never, I never heard, I never heard as even a sort of, partially angry word of dissent or disagreement between them. It would always be a discussion or Stanley would say, well, you know, uh, jack up, you know, those, you know, those wall lights and, you know, even if the light meter said, you know, 5.6, you know, uh, you know, Stanley would say, no, we'll put them up more because, you know, I don't believe it. John would say, that's what he wants. <laughs> that's what we do. He never said, well, no, light meter says this and we should do it like that. He was, he was very fluid and open and, and you know, a, a really nice man. Very nice, very nice man. I knew it had to be a, a special collaboration because, obviously, uh, Mr. Kubrick is, was very meticulous with his with his compositions and, and those images from his films just burn in your brain. I mean, they're, they're going to live forever. Uh, and, and he was a technical... A technological innovator as well, uh, Mr. Kubrick was. I mean, he was. He was uh, very often because, you know, 
you never know what comes first, you know, the chicken or the egg, you know, whether the demand, you know, and, and, and the forcing through of a demand for something is, is what has made it work or whether it's because, you know, there was an organic understanding, oh, we need a way of looking at this picture. Let's go back to the Aeroflex tube thing, you know, so that I'm free to see what would be seen through the viewfinder of a camera. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it's it's hard to say how something like that starts, you know. But having been a stills photographer and a, a really outstanding one from an early age, your know, composition was everything for Stanley. Everything yeah. really yeah. was. That's why continuity, you know, from one picture to another. Some people can say, "Well, wait a minute, where was that?" jug of flowers or <laughs> where you know it was there in the last shots and on this one for Stanley it was every picture as far as possible stood for itself yes yeah um just to move on br- briefly to full metal jacket and and you're being so generous with your time i, I really appreciate it um uh now full metal jacket i read a quote from arlie ermy who said that you kind of acted as his drill instructor during the process of of making that film. Yes. <laughs> and, I, and what you can say is this, that, you know, for a man who'd spent a good part of his life, you know, you know shouting and screaming at others, um, he was extremely generous and good-natured enough to allow me to do that. <laughs> <laughs>
his 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 hat, his everything, his uniform, everything, you know. Um, I said, and you dress up, and then you deal with them on a one-to-one basis as you would if they had just come into the boot camp, and that's what he did. And so suddenly, I ha- we had, I had hours and hours and hours and hours of this outrageous dialogue, <laughs> screaming in the faces of all these guys, you know. And I showed these to Stanley, and and you know he realized this was the real deal. This was not mm-hmm. someone acting. This was someone just doing it, you know, the way they always used to do it. And so we distilled, in the end, we distilled all the dialogue down from Lee, you know, the Lee Ermey videotapes, and there was something like 800 pages of it. Wow. We distilled it all down to what you see in the film. Remarkable. He was remarkable. He is remarkable in that film. Um, I, I have a question about uh, his his fascination, uh, Mr. Kubrick's fascination, and, and, and his feelings uh, on war because he he's he dealt with wartime situations prior in his work. I mean, Paths of Glory being uh, a famous example. Um, and there had been the, the Vietnam War had been covered. In various films prior, and and uh, obviously during with Platoon, with Full Metal Jacket, and after. But w- what was his unique uh, take? What did he want to investigate in the, the phenomenon of war? Do you think? Well, you know, he understood war as you know something that was totally undesirable, and generally, you know, he felt it was it meant there'd been a failure. Somewhere along the line, between you know, from the understanding and 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 diplomatic uh, you know interaction which is needed you know, to avoid these things, but he also understood that from the dawn of man, you know, it's almost as if it's a gene inside the human race. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's astonishing, isn't it, that when one talks about the 20th century, you know, people talk about the First World War, which lasted from 1914 to 1918, and then, you know, 21 years later, you know, there was another World War. Mm. And then after that, after 1945, there was Korean War. And after the Korean War, there was the Vietnam War. And you, you realize that in between the World Wars, somewhere on the planet, and particularly, say, in Russia after 1918, there was a war going on there. You know, there was wars in the Balkans. In fact, there were wars happening all the time. And you think of Britain, for instance, they, from 1850, they were involved in five wars before they even got to the First World War. So you understand that it's a pattern in the human in human nature at the moment, or that's one of the ways we could maybe understand it and learn how to deal and cope with it. Mm-hmm. And so he understood that it was there was an inevitability about about war. And but inside that of course you have a multitude of stories um that make up the total picture of a war and it can be it can be a national phenomenon as in Doctor Strangelove where, you know, the war is actually a cold war, where mm-hmm. not a shot is fired, but the threat is huge and always there. Uh, Paths of glory, where you know human life meant very little 
to any of the sides fighting. You pitched people in and just said, you know, you're fighting for your country, get on with it, and uh, right up to Full Metal Jacket, where, you know, there was a feeling that, you know, it was a war that was basically unnecessary and probably shouldn't have been fought and was fought, you know, with little understanding of the kind of war that should be fought. You know, the people who got it right, of course, were the North Vietnamese who understood they'd been fighting in the field for 20 years before the Americans came along. And, you know, it wasn't thought out and it wasn't wasn't understood. Um, So, you know, inside the phenomenon of, of war and man's you know, <laughs> preoccupation with it. There are all these angles and, and ideas and stories and philosophies and God knows what. So, you know, he didn't, you know, he was anti-war. He was anti-war, but he understood yeah. that it happens. And so, you know, get inside it and examine the phenomenon from the human perspective, which is what he always wanted to do with each of those three films. I think so too, and 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 you you bring up a, a good point in that uh, it's it's the way that audiences are accustomed to seeing movies that do the work for them. So and and Mr. Kubrick's movies never did that. I mean, they he was unafraid of ambiguity. He was unafraid of illustrating that uh, yes, war is senseless. It's terrible, but it's something in our nature. Uh, yes, Alex is a is a murdering. Thug in Clockwork Orange, but he's also extremely moved by Beethoven. Uh, Talk about that a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's very much so. But also, you know, there was there was you know something which I've really has really come home uh, to me um, was that in the period where Full Metal Jacket and Platoon um, were released. You know, there was Hamburger Hill. There were, you know, mm-hmm. other Vietnam, Viet, you know, wars about Vietnam, uh, films about Vietnam War, and another one was, you know, I think Coming Home, Born on the Fourth of July. All these films were made in and around that period, and if you notice that, it was quite a while after the end of the Vietnam War when these films were made, and when they were. Because they'd, they'd made films about the Vietnam War before, but they hadn't been particularly successful. And I think there was a lesson there, which maybe the film industry hadn't really learned, was when you look at every film that's been made about the Iraq War, it hasn't been a particularly successful mission for the film companies. Yeah. It's too close. You know, yeah, there's not enough distance, exactly. Not yeah. enough distance, you see, and that's the only way. And even Full Metal Jacket, I can tell you, that the mid, you know, in the Midwest, you know, there were a lot of local papers and local critics who really did not like that film, and Stanley couldn't really understand it. And I tried to explain to him that in those communities, they would have known many, many, many of the kids, you know, who had been killed and you know lost in action or had come home traumatized and they would have had a great effect on their community so when you finish a film with a bunch of soldiers singing the mickey mouse song which is what the vietnam war was known as for many people the mickey mouse war you know it's going to offend some people deeply yeah. deeply because they have personal loss because of it you know yeah and it's something he hadn't really thought about but 
it's true. I mean, I'm convinced that that's the reason why it was more frostily received, you know, in the, in the you know mid states, you know, Colorado and, and those kind of places, and you know, east or west coast or, or wherever else, you know. I think you're right. I think it was too fresh for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it, it's really it was his most successful film. That's the other irony. <laughs> uh, Eyes Wide Shut uh, is my one of my all-time favorite films, uh, and I it's one of those that I go go back to every year. I, I, it moves me so much. Um, and you, you t- tell me about your uh, participation in, in that project. I know that you ended up performing in various roles, particularly at the at the masked ball as right. Red Cloak and a couple of the other figures there. But tell me about your involvement in the whole process. Um, we started um, by by the time we started Eyes Wide Shut, I was I was already working with you know laboratories and and you know telecine and you know actively all that kind of stuff and a lot of other stuff too. You know, I mean, uh, you know. I worked on all his films, basically, you know, from, well, from Powers of Glory, even in Killer's Kiss, you know, because I was working with the labs on all those films. They were always being released, always being put on video, being, being released, and there mm-hmm. were always subtitle translations that had to be checked and, and and subtitle timings. I mean, so I was deep, 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 deep into working with Stanley, you know, and with Eyes Wide Shut, we started with a blanket call. Well, first of all, Stanley, um, you know, engaged Tom and, and Nicole um, for the lead roles, you know. Um, and then as soon as that was secure, I started a, a huge blanket casting session for every American actor you could find in, in the UK. And there are, there are more of them than one would think. <laughs> there really are a lot of American actors who live in London, you know, because there's a quite a big market for particularly voiceover stuff there. And mm-hmm. uh, but more and more Americans, uh, as you're seeing here in 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 America, actually more and more British being seen on, you know, your normal run of television. You're hearing more and more English accents doing voiceover for commercial advertisements. So. It was a huge casting process. It really, really was. Um, and a difficult one because none of the peripheral, when I say peripheral roles, I mean anything outside uh, Tom Nicole, Todd Field, um, basically everything else were like one shot, one scene or two scene uh, meetings, you know, on Tom's travels through, you know, his mental world. Yeah. Um, so the, there were... I mean, the casting, I can tell you, started six months, seven months before we actually even got to shooting. But it didn't end until we actually finished shooting because it just became kind of unmanageable with everything else that had to be done. And the biggest challenge was actually finding, you know, the girls to be in that uh, mass ball scene. Right. And up there again, you see, we're into thousands. We're into thousands. I mean, 4,000 sounds like a magic number, but it had, it was well up in that area by the time we found all those girls, you know. Um, And, you know, so, 
and once again, you know, when I was casting, um, I, w I would have to act the scene, you know, with them. So for any role that came in, like, uh, you know, the, uh, the hotel receptionist, you know, I had to know the dialogue just as well as they did so I could act it with them on the auditions, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was still working with... I mean, Stanley used to give me notes as an actor. I was never on camera. I was always just behind it, uh, you know, to one side for their eye line. But he, he sometimes used to ring me in the morning and say, you know, Genie, I mean, your acting was terrible last night. I mean, it was just awful. And I'd say, well, Stanley, this is like the 40th time, you know, I've done this particular role, this particular, you know, part, bit. And, you know, inside those 40 auditions would be anything from, you know, 5 to 10 to 15 takes until, you know, the actor was happy with what he'd actually delivered, you know. So, you know, it went on like that. And one of the problems was also finding, because he wasn't sure about how the mask ball was going to work, originally it was going to be some kind of MC who was going to be the only person who wasn't wearing a mask to be present in that time. And that was, you know, he was going to be the one sort of jumping around and, and you know, cross-examining uh, you know, Tom Cruise's character, Bill. Um, but then he realized that was a little bit sort of a la cabaret, you know, the kind of MC uh, figure that he had there. So he decided he was going to do it the way he did it, which was the mask, you know, the guy, you know, head honcho in a, in a you know red cloak and a mask and so you know I'd seen about 30 people and I was in the middle of auditioning another another person for that role and I got a phone call inside the casting inside the casting room and I picked it up and he said hey, I've decided you're going to do that <laughs> and, and 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 that was the end of the discussion that was it <laughs> that was the end of the discussion mm -hmm. um, so you know I was I was doing that and and that's how I ended up, you know, playing that playing that role. But I also did, as you said, you know, some others inside that masked ball. In fact, yeah. when he comes in, you know, I take his coat, I usher him into the room in the next cut. I'm up in the balcony in the next cut, and you know, I take the girl away from him in the hallway, two steps further down, and, you know, and so it went on, you know, and. Uh, and you know, I, you know, I was messing around with some other, some other things there too. But so that whole process, that whole thing, you know, it was never meant to be naturalistic. And I'm so happy to hear you say that you 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 liked that film because it sounds to me like you've you kind of understood it. It is it, funny how much you know, kind of controversy. That's for one mm -hmm. word, although that is the word to use really that it raised because it was so unexpected it was like listening to a new Beatles recording you know like listening to Sergeant Pepper after you just heard Revolver you thought well what are they doing this is this is this is not the Beatles I knew from Please Please Me you know every one of his films was like that and I think it all, he always called people on the wrong foot yeah and because and this one ended up in optimistically you know that was another mm -hmm. thing that floored some people you know. Well, as an actor, I, I, I know that you're aware. I mean, actors talk about the moment of transcendence uh, when they achieve that in, the, in their performances. And I find that the, the movie Eyes Wide Shut is that for me. It is just a transcendent 
experience, as a lot of Mr. Kubrick's movies are. But there's just something that's that's so reached me and, and moved me so deeply about Eyes Wide Shut. And I wanted to ask about the – it seems like a unique – experience particularly between Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and, and and his working with them because the I mean the movie is about intimacy and 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 right. what what happens in your mind when that intimacy is shaken a bit uh and so I would imagine that he was very intimately involved with the two of them during this entire process very much so and um you know he nearly always when they were rehearsing you know, before they shot any particular scene, you know, not just with them, that was actually a normal sort of operation for him, you know, emptied the set, emptied the set, just him and and Tom and Nicole, that mm. was all, you know, and to keep working, working it through, working it through, working it through. And another thing which also applied to all the movies, all the movies that I worked with him on, anyway, from Barry Lyndon onwards, was that the script never stood still. It never stood still. There was always, so far as he was concerned, you know, a rewrite, a rewrite, a rewrite. In fact, you know, in that documentary of The Shining, Jack Jack Nicholson's, when he's sitting with Stanley and Stanley's parents, and Jack says, oh, yeah, you know, we're getting these changes all the time. They're all color-coded, you know, pink green or what have you and in any one day you can have all these color pages coming at you because Stanley's just done another rewrite and he said and the trouble was you know by the end of the day you couldn't remember what color you started on and and it was absolutely true and he carried that process right through to the editing as well you know it it, it was the film was always developing and changing you know rather like a huge sort of organic (laughs) kind of creature it was a living thing, yeah. It was a living thing. It, it never stood still. It was always, you know, he'd cut, he'd cut, he'd cut, he'd cut. It didn't matter how in love he was with a, you know, a sequence or a line that somebody said and the way they said it. If it wasn't, if it didn't fit or if it was irrelevant in some way, it went, you know. So he was always doing that, you know, changing changing the dialogue or ripping some dialogue out or putting some in some other place that he thought might make a difference. So particularly the bedroom scene between Bill and Alice when she tells him of her fantasy and how she almost left him for, you know, and was almost unfaithful. Mm-hmm. That was a, a piece of living, uh, changing, developing you know, organic uh, work, you know. So, you know, it, it, I, I think, and, and there again, you see, I don't think either of them had ever worked in that way with a film director before, but they were so open for it, and I never heard a word of complaint. I never heard there was, I don't think, you know, any tantrums at all. Right. Um, they just laid themselves open for it and gave themselves to Stanley and what he wanted out of them, you know. Mm. It's such a hypnotic, hypnotic movie. I mean, I, I'm, I'm insane about that film. Uh, it, and he was too, wasn't he? I mean, I heard it was said that he he, fe- he felt it was his favorite film among his own. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, I think artists, which is what Stanley, Stanley was, you know, I think they generally th- they generally will think that, 
because for them they're always on the road you know to doing something different or to advance some feeling or thought that they've wanted to to express you know and and now's the time to do that i think that's very much their modus operandi you know mm-hmm. and i think a lot of artists do feel that that you know for him it was it was a very different film but all his films were very very different and yeah i think you know that's why for him he was he was very crushed you know with the negative reviews that came with Barry Lyndon for instance you know it really hurt him for for many 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 years and mm. uh, it was only when he you know the bbc did a series you know of his films all the way from lolita right through to uh, Full Metal Jacket at that time. And Barry Lyndon got five stars in this, uh, you know, film critique uh, section of, of the paper uh, and and said that for them, that was the true odyssey. You know, that was his true masterpiece. Hmm. And, you know, it was the first time I'd ever seen him. He came bouncing to my office when he read that. He said, it is a good film, isn't it? It is a good film. <laughs> I said, yes, Gary, we've been telling you that for years. <laughs> you know, but he was so hurt by it, you know, he really was. Um, and and so, you know, uh, I think I'm, I'm glad, when I say I'm glad he wasn't around to read some of the negative reviews that came with Eyes Wide Shut, I don't mean that I'm glad he was dead. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, it would have hurt him. It would have hurt mm. him again because for him, every film he made was like his best work because he he brought so much more understanding for each piece of work that he did, which might not have been there before. Well, time from the previous, you know, something he'd learned from the previous exercise, as you yeah. Well, time is very valuable, and as you just said about Barry Lyndon, uh, it took a while for people to catch up to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, to discover what he was doing. And, uh, I mean, I feel the same way with Eyes Wide Shut. And, and the more people I talk to, and I talk about Eyes Wide Shut a lot <clears throat> to people, and, and I find that it's one of their favorite films as well. So a, yeah. a lot of people out there get it, uh, over the years, and many more are getting it too. Because, you know, when, when the film was very first released, and, you know, when it was released in the U.S. and, and, um, later in Britain, and it, it was very, very strange because, first of all, I was just so busy because we had all the foreign versions to do and all the transfers. So it was nonstop. You know, even the man had died, but it meant the work still had to go on, you know. Mm-hmm. And after after people had seen that film, some people would sort of walk up to me and they'd say, and this is how they said it. They said, Leon, Leon, you know, I saw eyes wide shut. I really loved it. Why is it such a secret for them? (laughs) (laughs) And it's because there have been, you know, a lot of negative reviews. And and I guess, you know, if you're going to argue about, you know, and I have had people who I've never been introduced to, but, you know, in the same room who who knew who I was, who would say very loudly, apropos of nothing else, saying, yes, eyes wide shut. Well, I didn't really get that. You know, like, yeah okay, go and see it again. It's not that difficult. You know, mm-hmm. get, you know, there's nothing to get. You watch it and you come out with something or you don't, you know? And and so it's sort of, 
his films kind of evoked that kind of if there's a lot of love there's going to be a little bit of the opposite too that's going to come at people yeah and also I find that I find that it's Kubrick's films can mean something different to you depending upon the stage of your life that you watch them I mean they can become deeper experiences Exactly. Uh, if you watch them years later, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yes, I mean, you depend. It can depend on the time of night and the state you're in and everything. And if you think that a film can mean something different to an individual each time they watch it, you know, imagine multiply that by how many millions <laughs> mm-hmm. for everybody who watches them and and gets something out of them and for themselves. And that was his basic principle. He didn't want to tell you what to think. He wanted you to make up your own mind, which yeah. is a brave, a brave thing for anybody to do in, you know, theater or film or any kind of entertainment of that sort. I agree. It's something we're missing now. <laughs> um, uh, so t- tell me about the, your most uh, cherished memory of him. When you when you think about Mr. Kubrick, what, what do you cherish most about him? Oh, God. Oh, God. That's like asking me what my favorite music is. <laughs> My favorite yeah. movie, you know, I always say, well, you know, do you want the 200 number ones I have in my list? Um, I, 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 te- I tell you what I miss more than anything else is that on a daily basis, however, however, you know, pig arrogantly angry and pissed off he could be, we, we, we always had a laugh. You know, sometimes, yeah. You know, he he had he had gallows humor, uh, great gallows humor. You know, and funny enough, so do I. I mean, you know, the black joke is is you know a very funny thing. You know, sometimes, and uh, so there was plenty of that. Or it would just be, you know, a pun, something as simple as a pun, or mm-hmm. something that you know you had to wrap your mind around, and then suddenly you got. You got the joke, and which would make you laugh even even louder, and it worked both ways. And sometimes, you know, he would come down. He always kind of saved me for last if there was a negative to time for any one of his films. He saved me for last in the day, so he wouldn't reach me till ten at night, and we'd still be there at three in the morning, and half that time's spent sitting on the sofa talking about everything on this earth that you could think about talking about. Mm-hmm. But you know, very often. You know, it was funny, you know, and often it was serious, but it's it's that sort of, um, you know, it was that kind of quick-witted, you know, as, as tired as he could be, particularly on Eyes Wide Shut, when I really, you know, really did see signs of him flagging physically, you know, uh, the, the mental side was just so sharp, so there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I guess... I guess I would say I miss that. I can't point to any one particular, you know, thing. That, you know, but it's it's that it's that. Which, yeah. as I said before, all of it came out of a curiosity, you know, you know, questioning and and you know, hearing a, a simple statement, for instance, like uh, there was a British soldier, you know, who'd been uh, arrested because they'd uh, he'd, he'd been a mercenary, you know. And um, in the Congo, and he'd actually, you know, been held personally responsible for, you know, the uh, unnecessary killing of of a family, actually. And um, 
and I felt very sorry for his parents, who who were very ordinary people, uh, and they interviewed them on television, and uh, they said, well, you know, he's not a cold-blooded killer. I mean, if he did that, someone must have told him to, which, of course, is what a cold-blooded killer is, right? Someone tells you to go and kill somebody, and, and, and it just, we fell about laughing. You just fell about laughing. And it was it was those kind of, you know, ironic kind of, you know, misstatements, really, which really, you know, got us laughing as much as anything else.